You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Uh, welcome everyone. My name, I'll add my welcome to Pete's. My name's Al. I'm one of the leaders here. Uh, it's great to have you with us at City Church this morning. Um, last week I was in uh, City Valley Church in Shipley in Bradford. And thank you very much to those who prayed for me or have asked how it, how it went. It was great. It was good to be there. Uh, I always miss City Church when I'm away because, well, you're all lovely. And it's kind of nice being away. Yeah, yeah. It, it's nice being away and it's good serving other churches. But there's always elements that I think, oh man. I wish it was Gaz leading worship, or oh, I wish it was. so. Uh, and this morning I got Gareth leading worship, which was fantastic. So thanks, Gaz. Um, this is the penultimate sermon of mine before I go on sabbatical. So uh, Phil said, "Is it another sling and stone one?" No, that's finished now, finally. Um, and so I had to think, I had to kind of come up with something new uh, for, for this week. So uh, I've been praying and thinking and reading as you do. You know, I didn't do this sort of thing. Oh, Lord, speak to me, please. Uh, and there, praise the Lord. Ah, see, it works. Um, I, I didn't quite do that. I looked at the, the Lenten lectionary and had a read and a think and a pray. And so we have a two-parter this week and next week. And then that's it for me preaching until August. Yeah, I know. Lucky you. So, uh, and it's obviously there are, there are some plans in place for some fantastic teaching and content coming up um, over the summer months. We will be back uh, for the weekend away in that sort of early, early weekend in July. So uh, it will be a, a good few weeks and I'm going to have to try and do some practice, get match fit preaching again before I stand up and actually do preach because I probably will not have the throat for it anymore. Anyway. Today, we're going to be exploring a New Testament book for a change, and it's always a little bit uncomfortable to begin a sermon in the middle of a book of the Bible, unless it's something like Psalms, which you kind of have a bunch of individual Psalms anyway, but something like the book of Romans, for example, which is where we're looking today, it's a little bit awkward just picking up something in the middle because it's such a rich and tightly woven piece of writing and thought, and it kind of flows, and, uh, and it is possible to start in the middle somewhere, but it means that you have to do a, a, a certain amount of throat clearing and introducing and all the rest of it. Nevertheless, I've chosen that uncomfortable path for us, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 this morning and next week. I'm going to begin with just the first two verses this morning, and then next week we'll pick up another few verses, and it's just really a short chunk of text. Today we're going to be reading and unpacking these couple of verses from the Apostle Paul. Therefore, he says, since we are justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Now, I need God's help, and therefore you really need God's help, So, because I'm speaking to you and you know, it's going to be tricky. So let's pray for a moment. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to 
bring light and insight, illumination of this rich, wonderful text. This breathed out by God word, may it be breath of God breathing into our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're the one, the God with us who makes this scripture live and breathe and powerful and active in our hearts. We ask that you would do good to us through your words. Strengthen us and build us up. Bring glory to the Lord Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. All right, so here's this dense, rich verse right in the middle of the book of Romans. And to work our way into it, we need to try and give the fullest shorthand answer that we can to the question, what does it mean to be justified by faith? That's how we're going to start this morning. What does it mean to be justified by faith? Paul says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, and it's important to try and understand what that might actually mean. The tricky part about that is that Paul's phrase, that those words justified by faith, are also shorthand. So we're trying to do a shorthand version, a shorthand answer of Paul's shorthand version of something. Right? Paul's phrase justified by faith sums up a whole load of different ideas about God and his people and his promises, about scripture and covenant and about the future and the present and the past. It's really, really intense. It's perhaps the densest little phrase that you could find in scripture justified by faith. So let me try and give you a few highlights this morning, things, if you like, that you need to know about what it means to talk about being justified by faith. First of all, to say we are justified by faith, and Paul is writing to a Christian community, by the way, should make that distinction early doors. This is not something that just counts for the family of man, of humankind on the whole. Paul is talking about Christian believers in Rome. We are justified by faith. This is something that applies to you if you are a believer. If you are not someone who would call yourself a Christian, then by the end of this meeting today, it could potentially apply to you, but perhaps you'd want to come and speak to me at the end of the meeting, and we can talk about how that might work. What does it mean? Well, first of all, to be justified means to be declared righteous or vindicated. That's not really language that we tend to use much in our cultural moments. It's sort of legal language, forensic, law court language. Basically, our sin makes us guilty and at enmity with God. That's not a very popular thing to say in the 21st century. Enmity with God. Hmm. I thought God was just like a, a massive version of our Western liberal ideas and values, that everybody's welcome and God just, yeah, come in. (laughs) Well, hold on a minute, actually. The biblical story, the biblical meta-narrative describes 
humans being at enmity with God, even the people whom God called to be a light to the nations, the people of Israel, have somehow fallen and have found themselves to almost be at enmity with God as well. So to say we are justified by faith to be declared righteous is a profound thing because we have been at enmity. We've been guilty whether or not we felt that or not. I think as a Christian you have to be very careful to not allow a felt sense of things to be the determiner for what is true or not because your feelings can really play the light of reality sometimes. You know that, right? Not many people wake up first thing on a Sunday, on Monday morning or whenever going to work and think, hey, hooray, here I am, justified by faith and destined for future glory. Most people are like, oh, I forgot to make my lunch. Or why is, why is my son not out of bed yet? Or why is he playing FIFA when we told him to stop? Or whatever it might be. A little snapshot into Rose family life there. <laughs> yet God declares us to be not guilty justified by faith, legal language, not guilty. Some people will like to say, some, I say some people, I haven't heard this for a little while, maybe you have. Some people like to say that being justified means that in God's eyes it's just as if I'd never sinned. (laughs) There you go, yeah, I know, I'm here all morning. Well, no, it's good. <laughs> it's cheesy, but, it, but it's good, just as if I'd never sinned. I actually think that it's better than just that, actually. We'll come on to that. How can it be, though? Well, the reason that God can declare us not guilty, can declare us righteous, can say that we are justified, is because Jesus willingly became sin for us at the cross. Jesus didn't become a sinner, don't make that mistake. Jesus became sin for us at the cross, willingly. The death of Jesus on the cross was God's judgment against all sin, past, present, and future. Not just sins, but sin as a power, as a thing. Christ willingly became sin, and by dying on the cross, he died to sin once for all. God judged sin in the person of Jesus. That's how, when we put our faith in Jesus, God can say, not guilty, because he's judged sin already. Yours, mine, all of our sin, justified by faith in the Lord Jesus. But that's only what we might call the negative element of justification by sin. When I say negative, I don't mean bad. I mean it's something removed. Okay? We're not guilty. We should be counted guilty, but we're not. That's been removed from us. Justification also is a crediting of something else to our account. This is the positive element of justification. We are declared righteous declared righteous. We are, giving, we are given an unchanging status of being in right relationship with God. And this comes to us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means this. 
By faith in Jesus, all of his beauty, all of his perfect righteousness, his obedience, his faithfulness, his goodness, that all now counts as mine in him. Sometimes people talk about justification and being counted righteous as this sort of legal fabrication. You know, God kind of cooks the books legally in order to say, oh, you're not guilty, I'm turning a blind eye somehow. Or somehow God kind of goes, and the the, the language of imputing kind of makes Beth Roderick. Well, we know that she's righteous anyway. Makes Beth Roderick righteous. So Beth kind of, whoa, all of a sudden she believes and now she's sinlessly perfect. Hooray. Well, no, because I've been around the Roderick's house and I've heard Beth. Goodness me, she swears like a trooper. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Beth, it's not true at all. But better, yeah, a bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> While you're running around the balcony, Pete, as well. We all know that becoming a Christian doesn't mean that all of a sudden we are sinlessly perfect, I hope. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you if you were of that opinion. To be declared righteous God, means that God sees us in Christ. But when he sees you, legally speaking, if you like, relationally speaking, he sees Jesus. You are in him. All that is Christ's is counted as yours. His faithfulness, his obedience. It's not just that there's this removal of the junk. You know, it's not like God's taken our recycling boxes out for us and kind of gone, there we go. He's done that and he's stocked up your fridge and your cupboards as well for free. He's removed all the crap out of your life, all the junk, the sins, all forgiven. And he says, you're righteous, accepted, declared to be just, vindicated before God. Through faith, baptism, repentance, receiving the Holy Spirit, in becoming a Christian, these things become true for us. Not guilty, Declared righteous, justified by faith. It's good news. Thank you. It's good news. It's good news particularly for you if you thought, oh, I've kind of thought being a Christian was all about wishy-washy feelings. Nah, no. It's about being declared righteous. It's about having somewhere to stand. But, ha, I'm getting ahead of myself. No wonder Paul can now say... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, since we have peace with God. How exactly should we think about this peace with God? Well, the most obvious way probably is to think about peace as the ending of enmity. Once we were at enmity with God, But now, through faith in Christ, justified by faith in him, we now have peace with God. I must confess, it's a bit of a wrestle, this one, because I think we like to think about God as as a kind, benevolent deity who just loves everybody. Oh, God just loves, God loves you, God loves you. It's the most obvious thing that trips off the tongue. God loves you, God loves you. And yet, outside of Christ, we're at enmity with God. 
So God loves you, yes, but you are also his enemy. But hallelujah, God loves his enemies. Otherwise, he wouldn't have bothered sending his son into the world to be an atoning sacrifice so that his enemies might become his family. I am a child of a king, she sang, Lottie did earlier. Hallelujah. I wasn't once. Once, I was teetering on the abyss because I was a rebel and a a transgressor. I rebelled against God and I willingly crossed the lines over and over again. I rejected God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ means the ending of enmity with God. Some people talk about this as living under friendly skies now. Hallelujah. God's not out to get you as a Christian. He's not really out to get anybody. But we were at enmity with him. Now we have peace with God. Other Christian thinkers have wrestled with the idea of peace in different ways, though. The great theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, described, and please forgive the gender-exclusive language here, but this was like 1918 or something, peace is the proper ordering of the relation between a man as a man with God as God, or as a, a human as a human with, between, with God as God. So in this sense, Bart is saying that peace has to do with overcoming the enormous gulf that exists between the divine and the human. You're not God, and God is not human. There is a huge gulf that exists between divinity and humanity, and it's a gulf that was only widened, exacerbated by human sin. It's terrifying. And when Bart speaks about peace with God in this way, you need to know that he is working overtime to make sure that we know that this is a peace that does not depend at all on our experience of that peace. He wants to make certain, and this I think is, his, is a really, really vital thing for us, he wants to make certain that we don't make the fatal mistake of thinking that peace with God is the same thing as our experience of somehow making the assumption that a felt something is the very same thing as a theological reality. It makes peace with God something internal, something that is just in me, something that is somehow part and parcel of my set makeup of emotions and feelings and cognitive capacity or whatever. But peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Bart wanted to make sure that we always and only recognize Jesus as the source of our peace. Always and only recognize Jesus as the source of our peace. You know, in a sense, peace with God, not in a sense, actually, (laughs) Peace with God is something that has been accomplished outside of ourselves. It's outside of you. Because peace with God was accomplished through Christ's death and resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God. That's where peace with God lies. 
If you don't feel peace with God, the worst thing that you could possibly do is go inward and try and find something somewhere in you that might be peace with God. You have to look to him. You have to look to Jesus, crucified and raised and ascended. That's where peace with God lies. That is the solid ground of God's action in making peace with us. It's something that only God could do. Therefore, it is not something that resides within you somehow. Yes, you can know peace with God. Perhaps Bart was a little bit too cerebral with it. But it's important because perhaps in our generation, being cerebral is not the thing that we could be accused of in the Christian church. Maybe we're too emotional. I think it's a good point that Bart is making. Peace is the end of enmity with God. We were once at enmity, now we are at peace with God. But that peace is based on who Christ is for us, and only that. And therefore we look to him for our sense of joy and delight and enjoyment of that peace. Charles Spurgeon, who was another famous, well, not so much a theologian, but a preacher in the 19th century. Charles Spurgeon used to say, I do all that I can, all in my power to cultivate a sense of closeness and intimacy with God. Not because that is the grounds of my peace, because only Jesus could be that. So even, see, 50 odd years before Bach, Spurgeon's going, ha, it's outside of me. It's Jesus. He's my peace. How do I enjoy being at peace with God? Do I just think it? Do I just have to live in my head? Do I just have to be a thinker and believe it no matter what? Black Knight style, your arms off? No, it isn't. Do I have to live in denial of things? No, Spurgeon said, no, listen, I'm going to make use of whatever spiritual discipline I possibly can because that is the means of enjoying the objective peace that I have with God in Christ. Right? Spurgeon knew, I don't gain peace with God by reading my Bible, by praying, by fasting, by singing hymns or worship songs or whatever. Now that's not how I get peace with God. It's how I enjoy it. I have it. I've believed in him. I'm justified by faith as a gift. I stand in grace. I have peace with God. And I enjoy that peace by worshipping and praying and all those spiritual disciplines. It might be if you are a joyless clot of a Christian who just can't get beyond being miserable all the time, you're not really putting yourself in a place where you can enjoy the peace of God that you have in Christ. It might be that you're trying to think it over too much. You're maybe too cerebral. Maybe you need to try and enjoy the peace you have with God as a gift. On the other hand, if you are a woo swinging from the chandeliers, well, God bless you, that's brilliant. But you need to think as well so that you don't mistake peace with God as something that resides in you, because it doesn't. It resides in Christ, who is at God's right hand. And you may enjoy it, absolutely, but don't enjoy it to the point that it drifts away and becomes flaky and just not clear. So we need to be a good mixture, don't we, of emotional, spiritual, mystic, and cerebral thinking, theological. There is a good model for you. You need to be part Karl Barth and part Charles Spurgeon, or uh, I can't think of a female alternative. So answers on a postcard, and I will I'll flag that next week.
talked myself into an ugly ditch here. So, justified by faith, peace with God. What does Paul say next? Through whom, through the Lord Jesus, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is a shorthand again, grace in which we stand. Paul does this all the time, and systematic theologians for centuries and centuries and centuries have, uh, have realized this as they've tried to get to the depths of what Paul means. We've talked about grace. Uh, and Christians for centuries and centuries and centuries have reduced grace to being God kind of just gives you a pat on the head and a sort of slightly wan smile when you mess up and says, off you go again. And there's riches and depths and wonder to grace. And it particularly comes to the fore here. Through the Lord Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Um, about 17 or 18 years ago, uh, a friend of mine, Andy Hutch, who's a lighting engineer and a photographer, very funny guy. We used to call him the scary Scotsman. Um, and because he was scary and because he was Scottish, it wasn't just a bizarre nickname that made no sense. Uh, Andy Hutch was a lighting engineer and, and he got a gig for a few years doing lights for Van Morrison. Ugh pretty cool and when Van Morrison came to Brighton on tour he was playing at the Brighton Dome and Andy Hutch called me up and said hey Al I'm doing a gig with Van I think he said Van I'm doing a gig with Van Morrison at the Dome do you want to come I was like I don't think I can afford it no 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 it's fine I'll give you a backstage pass (laughs) you're right (laughs) so I got this backstage pass I had this sticker access all areas. Oh, did I ever feel smug? Wandering past all the punters, queuing up outside the dome in the rain. And there I was, access all areas, thank you very much. Anyway, I, I bottled it. I didn't go backstage. <laughs> I didn't have the guts. Because I, well, yeah, I know, but I'd heard that he was a bit of a grumpy toad, you see. Um, Van, that is, not, not my friend Andy. And, and I, didn't, I didn't dare. I thought, what if I go backstage and he shouts at me or something? So I, I enjoyed the gig, but I didn't make use of the privilege that I'd gained, right? I'd been given access, see, to get into the holy place, if you like, of backstage. I could have eaten Van Morrison's tomato sandwich. <laughs> but I, I didn't. I bottled it. I didn't go in. But here's the thing. I needed someone... I needed someone to give me access, even if I had. If I had had the courage, I couldn't have just walked in as a regular punter. Oh, I'm going to go and say hello to Van Morrison now. Uh, Someone needed to give me access. And I was granted access by my friend on the inside, if you like. But I needed access to be able to get into that place and enjoy the privilege. It's a slightly convoluted analogy, but it does represent something important, that in the Lord Jesus, through the Lord Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into the grace that we now stand in. Maybe you want to picture a worshipper or someone approaching a shrine or entering a temple or something here. But what Paul's talking about goes a bit deeper than that. It's not just about whether you can get into a a, a building or something. It's not like saying, hey, anybody can come to church. It's deeper than that. He's talking about access to the power, goodness, generosity, love, favor, kindness of God. Someone has to give you access to that. 
Now, whoa, isn't this pressing the buttons on our liberal Western values? What do you mean that I can't just go in? What do you mean that there's restriction? What do you enmity with God? Restriction to the presence of God? What? Well, absolutely. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And what Paul says here echoes those words precisely. Here's the thing, right? Anybody may access this grace, but nobody can access it unless it's through faith in the Lord Jesus. Anybody can access this grace, but nobody can access it other than through faith in the Lord Jesus. Does that mean then that there is no grace outside of faith in Jesus? No, of course not. That would be preposterous. The Christian tradition understands the world and everything that has been made as a common grace. Common gifts from God out of his love, even for humanity at enmity with him, to enjoy and revel in. Of course there is grace outside of faith in Jesus. But Paul is talking about something different. He's talking about the grace in which we stand. He's talking about the gifted nature of the reality of being able to draw close to God and know the Holy One as not a threat, but a lover and a father and a benefactor and someone who is for us and who delights in us and loves to bestow good things upon us. Someone who is endlessly patient and kind and merciful. We only get access to that grace, to God's backstage, if you like, through faith in Jesus. There's no other means of accessing that other than through Jesus. Isn't that a little bit exclusion? Yes, it is, but it's not my idea. It's God's holiness. If you find that offensive, you've got a wrong view of God, and you're teetering on the brink of the abyss. Whoa! You think God is just like a Western man that is just kind and meek and like a little bit in there? We're talking about the holy God. And remember that gulf that exists between humanity and divinity. The gulf that God and God himself has bridged through Jesus and through faith in him. Don't imagine that you can just swan into God assuming things about God. We stand in grace. Do you realize what that means? Do you realize how, how just stupendously ridiculous that is? We stand in grace. It means that the whole realm of our existence now is marked by God's goodness, kindness, generosity, faithfulness. It's not something that we dip in and out of. It's not something that's like the doorway at the beginning to a Christian life. I was saved by grace, and now, well, I don't know what it is now. (laughs) Effort, rule-keeping, religion, no. It's all grace. The key, the door, the corridor, the room, the house, the everything. It's all grace. 
stand in grace now in the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Lord Jesus Christ. We could say perhaps that Jesus is not only the way that you get in, he's the way that you now remain in. I think a lot of us go wrong with this. We think, yes, I'll get it, saved by grace, but then we think we go on related to God by rules. In recent times, we've done some things as a church, like the common rule. We've talked a lot about emotionally healthy spirituality. It's helpful, but please don't let that replace the, either the knowledge that we relate to God day by day, moment by moment, by grace. It's not just the beginning, it's the everything. We stand in grace. Common rule and liturgy, whatever blah, blah, blah we do, it doesn't replace grace. It can be grace to you, it can also weirdly block off grace for some people because they think they just have to rely on doing the thing. But we stand in this grace now in the Lord Jesus. I need to hurry up because I've gone too long on this, but there we go. We're all here for lunch, so, you know, it's fine. And it won't be, you know, yeah, 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 but you know it's going to be late. It's always late a little bit, isn't it? It's fine. Anyway, microphone, right? Go and have a jog around the balcony or something, Pete. Stop interrupting. Terrible, isn't it? You can't even you can't preach in the church that you lead without being heckled. <laughs> Make sure when I'm on sabbatical you give him back good, right? I wanna <laughs> wanna hear a good report. Right. Standing in grace. And then finally this we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. This is the last little phrase in this passage. So we've done justification by faith, peace with God, access by faith into the grace of God in which we stand. They're all pretty glorious things. Agreed? <laughs> Am I the only one that thinks that this is actually really, really amazing? (laughs) James is on it. Thank you. It's because this is the most like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that we've been for a little while. So here we are. We boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. There is more still to rejoice in. There is a future glory for us that is mind-blowingly amazing. There is still for those who are justified by faith and have peace with God and who stand in grace. For those people, we boast in our hope of future glory, sharing the glory of God. The mind-blowing bit of this is that we will share the glory of God. But how? How? This is the kind of thing that you read and go, oh yeah, nice, great, fantastic, write that in my prayer journal, sharing the glory of God. Sure, there's a Bethel song that says that, great, amazing. But how? You see, here's the thing. Doesn't God say that he will not share his glory with another? Yes! In Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. Some translations say my glory I do not share with another. But Paul has just said that we will share the glory of God. Paul, you're a heretic, mate. Give up. Either that or Paul's seen something that we need to really seriously take note of. Yes, that one. It makes the centrality of Jesus all the more vivid for us. Listen, if God shares his glory with Jesus, then he's not sharing his glory with another because Jesus is the Father's glory. He is the exact representation of his being, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. The radiance of his glory. By sharing his glory with Jesus, it's not sharing it with someone else. He's sharing it in himself. 
because Jesus is the glory of God. And if you and I have been justified by faith and have peace with God and we stand in grace, it means that we have been united with Jesus. And that means that all that belongs to Jesus belongs also to you, including the glory of God. Whammy, flip. The glory of God shared with you and me, with wretched, busted, hypocritical sinners who actually think that Gary Lineker's all right. (laughs) But it's not quite yet, is it? We are justified by faith now. We have peace with God now, and we stand in grace now. And those things orient us towards that future hope. And it's something that we cannot yet quite lay claim to. The Bible talks about the Spirit being poured out in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Well, for Paul, our inheritance is the glory of God. And so the Spirit poured out in our hearts whom we receive is a taster, a foretaste, a little kind of an hors d'oeuvre, if you like, of the glory that we will share with Christ in the age to come. That's why we make a big deal about being filled with the Holy Spirit, because we want to be a people who know where we're heading, who know what our future destiny and hope is, and celebrate it. We have some things, and we're waiting for some things. We're securing some stuff, and we hope for the glory of God. Now, in a world full of blame, uncertainty, and anxious self-securing. Think about what we have received, church. We have been granted a status, justified, declared righteous. No need to be an aspirational person anymore. You've received the greatest status that you could possibly receive. We've been given peace, in a world that is desperate for some kind of peace or some kind of something or some ground to stand on. We have peace and grace and we have a sure and certain hope for the future which is an entering into the glory of the Son and a sharing eternally in the glory of God in the Lord Jesus to whom are all things and we are in him. So all things are ours. Let's close our eyes for just one moment. God of glory, we confess to you that we don't know the first thing about how glorious you are. That even the most remarkable and wonderful thing that we can think of you is just the outskirts of your ways. And yet here we are as a people whom you've loved, as a people whom you've called As the people who scandalously you've said justified, accepted, you've welcomed us into your presence. You've given us a hope and a future. You've called us heirs of your son. Everything that is his will be ours. We ask you, Lord, turn our heads and our hearts to see you with our peace. Fill our hearts with your spirit 
that we might hope and not grasp, that we might trust and not seize, that we might believe you and that we might rejoice with an inexpressible joy at the glory that we will share with you when you are revealed. Keep us from being flaky, losing sight of these things. Keep us from rooting it all in our experience. Help us to look to you and to believe you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. All right, there we go. One down, one to go. (laughs) Stick around for lunch. If you wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian and you'd like to find out about how you can also become an heir of the glory of God, I'd love to help you with understand that. See you in a bit.